Hello, hello, and welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast. Today, I am welcoming back Dr. Michelle Leary. She joined us last season in season two, talking about hormones, and today she's going to talk with us about attachment theory. Dr. Leary is a functional medicine physician and the director of functional medicine at Vita Integrated Health. Her specialties include primary care, sexual and hormonal health, fertility, and anti-aging medicine for both men and women. Dr. Leary began her early career in cardiac rehab prior to receiving her doctorate from Bastyr University. Then in 2016, she was the first naturopathic physician ever to be selected for a fellowship in multiple sclerosis management through the National MS Society. She has also completed training at the Institute of Women's Health, American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, and the Institute for Functional Medicine in areas of sexology, hormone management, anti-aging medicine, and metabolic weight loss. In addition to her clinical role, Dr. Leary is the owner and creator of PowerSexBeauty.com, a lifestyle brand and blog dedicated to women who want to optimize their health, invigorate their sexual energy, and live beautifully from the inside out. At the core of her approach to medicine is supporting her patients' mental, emotional, and spiritual health. So today, I'm talking with Dr. Leary about attachment theory and how we can use it to improve our relationships with ourselves, with others, and even with food. There's a lot of buzz on social media about attachment theory these days, so I wanted to learn more about it and how we can apply it to our lives in practical ways. I learned a ton in this episode, and I hope you'll enjoy my interview with Dr. Michelle Leary as much as I did. Welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast for high-performing women who want to up-level their health and feel their best in their bodies, careers, and personal lives. In this podcast, I'll sift through the latest nutrition and biohacking trends to filter out the bullshit, share what you really need to know, and help you put the good stuff into practice in a way that works for you. You'll get actionable tips from guest experts and myself on how to up-level your mindset, workouts, relationships, and environment, and start feeling like the badass woman you are. Join me as we bust through the bro science and male-centric health paradigm to help you achieve optimal performance, body, mind, and soul. So welcome back to the Nutrition Edit, everybody. I'm your host, Jeannie Oliver, and welcome today, Dr. Michelle Leary. I'm excited to have you back. So excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me again. So today we're going to talk about attachment theory, and I'm really curious to learn more about this. So I'm excited to have you here to educate us on this. And so let's just kick it off. Give us kind of a summary in a nutshell of what is attachment theory. I'll just start by saying attachment theory is, in my humble opinion, is really the holy grail of how we relate to our partners, relate to our friends, even relate to ourselves in terms of psychological theories that apply to humans. And there's, I'm sure, going to be psycho- psychologists out there that might disagree with me if they're big fans of, of, the, of other theories, but I just think that this is so foundational to human development. And I say that because attachment theory was really founded when uh, we look at how children develop from age zero to three. So how we form our initial attachment bonds to our primary caregivers. So predominantly our our mom and dad or, you know, grandparents or whomever raised us in those early years and how we felt about the emotional safety, the physical safety, the connectiveness of ourselves in those relationships. And there's a lot of nuance to how children attach to their parents and how they may have all the basic needs that they need. And I'll give some examples as we talk about attachment types. 
but it may not always provide them with the emotional needs that children need for appropriate development. So they may be well-fed, they have clothes, they have a roof over their head, but some of those emotional needs uh, may, may or may not have gotten met. So what we have found is that children who really develop these um, survival mechanisms, which attachment theory is really around how we adapt to survive because we want to make sure that's kind of our primary purpose when we're at that age is survival. And we rely on our primary caregivers for survival. So we have to learn adaptive strategies in order to do that. Right. That makes sense. Makes sense. So how did you get interested in this? And what kind of triggered that for you? And how did you get turned on to this? So I went through a, a challenging separation, marriage separation and divorce during the pandemic. My ex-husband and I actually separated April 3rd of 2020. So oh literally in the midst of kind of the world shutting down and I'm in healthcare and, you know, we were testing COVID patients in the parking lot and I had a one and a half year old and it was a crazy time of my life. And it, it just felt like, gosh, like, how did I get here? Yeah, right. Yeah. It was one of those reckoning moments of how did I get here? And similar to a lot of people, I was looking for answers in how to ensure that, you know, I, I never put myself in that situation again or my son. And so I started to really dive into my own attachment bonds and learned on a very intimate level kind of the reasons that contributed to the uh, loss of my marriage and how my relationship with myself had really been compromised for many, many years. And once I understood why, I was able to really rebuild that structure from the ground up. And I'm in a new partnership now and have been for a couple of years. And I can't say enough about how important the fact that I took that time to rebuild, how that has contributed to my ability to communicate in my current partnership, how I'm able to identify what my needs are, my partner's mm -hmm. needs are, and not see them as taking offense or what have you. So it was a really critical discovery in my adult life that I talk to patients about often because I, it was so transformational for me. That's really cool. And none of us wants to go through anything like that, that type of loss and just upheaval in our lives. But sometimes that's what it takes, right? For us to do the work that we need to do and do the healing and really identify our own needs and desires and get back in touch with that. I think, especially yeah. for us women, it's so easy for us to lose ourselves and just put everything before our own needs, identity, passions, and often unconsciously. Yeah. Right. Because we're just getting through the day to day and, you know, raising kids and taking care of parents and doing our careers and taking care of spouses, whatever it might be. So I think that that's really inspirational. And that's really why I wanted to have you talk about this, because I feel like so many women that I work with, men too, but definitely women really struggle with that. And I've struggled with that in the past too, just losing sort of that sense of self and especially as an entrepreneur, it's really easy to just get immersed in the daily grind and wake up one day and go, oh my God, like this is all I have going on. <laughs> Meanwhile, our spouses have these hobbies and different things and it can be, it can create resentment. It can create all kinds of negative garbage that 
doesn't do us any good, whether we're in a partnership or not. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, sometimes it really does take upheaval for people to kind of look internally and try to sort out what doesn't need to be there anymore and how to grow. I mean, rarely do people head over to the self-help section when things are going well. Right. Yeah, it's your, you know, seek out a therapist or do something in, in the realm of personal growth work. So I do think that it can be preventative for those who would otherwise do that. But to your point, so much of attachment theory is subconscious because we don't have the understanding, again, when we're very young children, age, ages zero to three, to barely have even the memories, let alone the conscious knowledge that our behaviors are imprinting our neuropsyche and our psychological development. And so then as we grow and become teenagers and adults and then enter into long-term committed partnerships, or many people do, that we are repeating the same behaviors that we actually learned as itty-bitty children if we are unable to access conscious awareness, which rarely comes naturally, rarely actually. Now, if you're one of the lucky 50% of the population, and I'll give some statistics here, that is securely attached, meaning that you are very well adapted, you're resilient, you're reciprocal in your relationships, both to your partner and to yourself, so you're not performing things where you're self-abandoning, nor Mm -hmm. are you requiring excessive amounts of distance and space in order to protect yourself. And again, we'll kind of get into that with different attachment types in a few minutes. But these behaviors are all subconscious. And until you kind of take a hard look at the why, and it can be something small, like your parent had to go back to work when you were a small child and you were left in the hands of a daycare. And that daycare, not as attentive when you were crying or with a lot of COVID parents, right? Maybe they had to work from home and Mm -hmm. the baby had to be in the other room and, you know, the baby had been fed, they'd been changed, they'd gotten all their basic needs met and the parent had to be on a call, right? And sometimes parents choose to make sure that their children are well taken care of in every way they know how, but that might have imprinted certain types of little t traumas, right? Miniature traumas on this child's psyche that then makes them feel unsafe. Mom goes away out of this room. She's never coming back, right? Mm -hmm. Neural Mm -hmm. doesn't have the understanding. So those types of behaviors and things that parents will have to do regardless can then impact how we are. So just because someone has a disorganized attachment type, does not mean that they had parents that actually did anything wrong. It could have also just been perception of what that child um, experienced. And I think that's such an important distinction because I think often that when people think about personal development, getting therapy, they think, well, I wasn't abused or I didn't have major traumas in my life or, you know, I had great parents. I can't blame them for anything. And I love this approach because it's not coming from a blame standpoint. It's coming from the point of, look, no one does everything. No one does parenting perfectly. It's impossible. But there are things that the perception of an infant cannot understand, right? And so it gives us so much explanation as to, you know, why we behave in certain ways, how we react to certain experiences, interactions, et cetera. 
coming from a place of like, hey, this is just part of life. This is just part of being human. And if we can understand it better, we can actually grow and make positive changes for ourselves so that we can optimize our lives, right? It's optimizing our mental health versus saying, okay, let's wait till something's really wrong. We've got these problems. It's just like we talk about in everything in functional nutrition and functional medicine. It's kind of going, let's just look at the root cause so that we can address anything that's happening downstream, right? Versus, you know, waiting until something's blowing up. And look, as humans, like often we don't make major change unless we're really uncomfortable. And that's just part of life too. And I think it's necessary and it's good and it's fine. But I think that this is a really wonderful tool to use both preventatively and reparatively. Yeah, absolutely. And I I have a saying in clinic with patients, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes, I love that. (laughs) No, it's really important that just because something feels uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's wrong. There's a big difference between your intuition that something is truly wrong and something that is actually just uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And there are reasons, even in this, escape of lifestyle medicine, there's a lot of self-sabotage, right? Which, in my opinion, relates also to attachment theory. There's a lot of self-sabotage that can happen because as people are making positive changes, sometimes then they throw it all out the window and maybe because they actually don't believe that they're deserving or they don't believe that they um, are worthy of love or they don't actually want to be seen because they've never been seen by others before in a positive light or something that they are doing well in their mind. So again, there's a lot of nuances with this, but really the foundation that I hope your listeners can understand is that attachment theory starts when we're very young, but can be reprogrammed. And I'll say that again and again throughout our conversation today as we're adults, but awareness is the first step in achieving that reprogramming. And it does take work. Yeah. As anything worthwhile does. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Well, let's jump in now. I wanted to learn more about the different attachment types. I feel like this is attachment theory is sort of buzzy. It's out there on social everywhere. Um, but give us kind of a rundown of what each of these types are and what they look like. Yeah, great. So it is buzzy. Um, social media loves to love attachment theory, and there's a lot out there. So um, the kind of, again, foundational type that we should all aspire to work towards is the secure attachment type, as I was referencing, and really somebody who is able to um, have healthy boundaries with their partner, who is able to be reciprocal in meeting their partner's needs, but also uh, meeting their own needs, which is not an easy feat um, for a lot of people to do, namely women, as you mentioned. Uh, Also being aware of some of their behaviors and how their behaviors affect others and being able to kind of own that when they do unintentionally hurt somebody's feelings intent instead of taking it personal, right? Like, oh, well, this did that to me. So as opposed to some of the disorganized attachment types, and there's three disorganized attachment types, four in total, including secure. The first is the anxiously attached or anxiously preoccupied um, attachment type. And that um, is often one that probably gets the most pressed because it's the individuals who are seeking out help most of the time are the okay. attachment types. And these individuals are um, 
often really amazing partners on kind of the outside and um, how they treat um, their partner on on the um, beginnings of relationships. And they really value the relationship over all else. They will self-sacrifice to uh, maintain the relationship because their needs are typically only met externally. They have never learned up until the point that they start to do some some self-growth work how to meet their own needs. So a characteristic of the anxiously attached is that they self-abandon quite mm, often. Yeah. So they will, at the first uh, request of their partner, if maybe they had wanted to go to the gym that day and their partner says, well, I, you know, I really want to see you. They will be the first ones to cancel anything that they had planned to do for themselves, cancel plans with friends and kind of run over to their partner, which over time uh, can really start to take a toll on the relationship. If your partner is constantly self-abandoning, um, we'll talk about that a little bit when it comes to enmeshment and codependency. Anxiously attached also tend to um, have exaggerated responses to heartbreak and mm. breakups can feel like a threat to their survival. So they will often actually feel like they are dying when they're going through a heartbreak. It's not actually something that, you know, people people say, well, it's tough for everyone. And, and it is tough for everyone when going through heart, heartbreak or loss of a relationship. But they actually have physiologic responses that mimic if they, their body was under attack. And wow. Yeah. And that is from past trauma. So again, little T or big T trauma that led them to this attachment type and their bodies will respond as if they are going through something far more serious than a loss of relationship. And that's because they don't have any reserves internally to fall mm -hmm. back on because they mm -hmm. really have made their partner the center of their world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is removed. Uh, anxiously attached are also the most likely to call very incessantly when their partner is not responding to them to um, do things that might seem like they're ready to jump into a relationship far too soon in the beginning of a dating phase and typically want immediately that seriousness um, mm. when other attachment types may want to take their time a little bit more. Yeah. And uh, that can be a hallmark of someone just wanting to get those needs met, wanting to get that external validation and wanting to have that safety of a person. So if somebody is hopping from relationship to relationship to relationship and kind of a serial monogamous, that may be something to look at in terms of, you know, is, is my attachment type leading towards anxious? And then finally, uh, anxious attached individuals will um, often reach a, a breaking point in relationships because they are um, getting their needs uh, or in their mind, their needs are not getting met by their partner because no one individual human can meet somebody else's need. Right. It's just impossible. So even if they have a secure partner, that secure partner is not going to be able to meet the level of care that they anxiously is and often the anxiously attached if they're not doing the self-growth work that's necessary to heal 
they will reach a breaking point and often will be the ones after years to then exit the relationship mm-hmm. um, because they feel like that there's someone else out there that is better. And unfortunately, what they find is that they start to repeat these behaviors again and again and again throughout the until they they recognize what's going on. That is in deep contrast to the dismissive avoidant attachment type. I want to ask you one question before we move to the yeah. next type. Will you clarify for our listeners the difference between what we talk about as little T trauma and big T trauma? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. So big T trauma would be someone who experienced physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse on a greater scale, and even had significant trauma. Let's say that they were relocated you know, as a young child from one country to another, or even through a traumatic divorce, something that you could point to is like, oh, this event happened. Major. Yeah. This event happened. Little T trauma could be something like we talked about earlier with uh, a parent needing to go to work every day mm-hmm. and that child feeling abandoned. Or um, let's say that they got, you know, a series of, of bad grades in school and their parent would not speak to them mm. for days following, or um, they had a older sibling that got a lot of attention because they were an athlete and this other individual um, didn't. And they felt like there was this repeated little T trauma of feeling like they weren't good enough. So those are some examples of the difference. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's super helpful. Yeah. So dismissive avoidant is um, really the opposite in a lot of ways of the anxiously attached. And it's this um, absolute, uh, you know, flippant side of them in the sense that they need a lot of personal time. They need a lot of space. They need a lot of time to self-soothe. The anxious doesn't know how to self-soothe. The dismissive avoidant individual has learned how to self-soothe extremely well from a very young age. They are very good at meeting their own needs. So that might mean um, uh, boundaries. They may be able to communicate very firm boundaries with their partner, sometimes to the point that they are pushing their partner away because they are actually fearing intimacy as opposed to, again, the anxious who is craving intimacy, craving attention, craving reinforcement of that relationship, the dismissive avoidant is like, whoa, I need some space. I need to make sure that I am not getting uh, too enmeshed here. I want to ensure that my time stays my time and that no one takes that away from me. Vulnerability and fear of vulnerability is probably the biggest theme in dismissive avoidance. Um, This often can stem from a child growing up and they uh, did not have their emotional needs validated. They will, let's say as an example, that this child um, was often looking for some sort of uh, validation attention from their primary caregivers and um, they were met with a you know, don't cry, um, you know, go play by yourself. I don't have time for this right now. Kind of pushing that child away because of whatever circumstances that may have arisen, right? Sure. And so the child had to learn these adaptive strategies to really rely on themselves and only rely on themselves. And they then grow up with that mentality that closeness is not safe. 
And mm-hmm. vulnerability is not safe because when I'm vulnerable with those closest to me, I get hurt. And when I get hurt, it, it doesn't feel good. So I'm yeah. just not going to let anyone close to me. And I'm going to make sure that, especially in intimate partnerships, that I always keep my partner at a arm's length because then I, I can't um, get hurt. Some characteristics of the dismissive avoidant um, tend to be ones that stereotypically can be considered masculine. It doesn't mean that this women, lots of women are dismissive avoidance, but stereotypically they tend to have shorter relationships um, because they jump from short term relationship to short term relationship because this as soon as a person starts to see them for who they really are, that is when they want to they want to hop. They also crave some of that beginning relationship energy, the intimacy and the mm-hmm. sexual energy that comes with the beginning of relationship. They equate that with that being healthy. That's typically not going to last for anyone, uh, but they don't quite understand that. They also tend to pursue relationships with people who are unavailable. So this means long distance relationships. This could be people who are workaholics. This could be even people who are already in existing relationships and allows them to kind of have this safety net. Yeah. So they just feel like, okay, this person isn't too close. And they also tend to fantasize about um, past lovers or past relationships because they think about the phantom ex as it's stated in, in some of the attachment theory literature. And what that means is that they're they're no longer in a relationship with that person, but they're thinking about, oh, that person was really so much better than my current partner. Yeah. Because now the current partner is what's in front of them and the past partner is safe because they're further away. They're very critical of their partners and they tend to elevate their own vision of themselves. And Mm. anxiously attached are the opposite. They tend to be extremely good at putting their partners on a pedestal. And they diminish their own value and their own sense of self because they haven't ever learned how to balance the two. So those, those are some contrasts. It is very interesting to note, and this is all over social media, atta- uh, anxiously attached and dismissive avoidance, they tend to attract each other in a really big way. Yeah, I have definitely, I can name couples. <laughs> yeah, I see that a lot. It's classic. And the reason for that is actually speaks to their subconscious comfort zone. So the anxiously attached individual does not do well with someone who dotes on them. You Mm -hmm. wouldn't expect that based on what they're craving, but they get very uncomfortable when someone is giving them too much attention, which is why you don't see an anxiously attached with an anxiously attached partner. Almost Mm -hmm. never do those two attachment types meet up and link up. The anxiously attached really uh, feels most comfortable trying to chase after somebody because that is what they had to do when they were a young child to get their mother, father, grandparents' attention. And then once they did, they felt so important. They felt so loved. The chase is really where that neurochemical drive comes from. And and then once they receive it, they're kind of like, okay, this is it. Yeah. Conversely, dismissive avoidance, um, they like being chased. They actually feel, again, valued, worthy. Um, It elevates their sense of self-importance. And it uh, really reinforces their perspective that somebody's just trying to trap them. 
right? Mm, right. That perception that somebody is trying to lock them down and take away their freedom and that they are not in a relationship ever safe. And the anxious calling them incessantly, telling them, you're not meeting your needs. Yeah. Why don't you tell me you love me? Why don't you show up for me more? It, it reinforces some of those behaviors, although they, they really do, in an unhealthy way, they really do kind of uh, meet each other's needs subconsciously. Right. Yeah. So even though it's not healthy, it's familiar on a nervous familiar. system level. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some of the things that you're mentioning when it comes to this dismissive avoidant type seem a little reminiscent of how we categorize narcissism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of an extension or can that, can this be sort of a precursor to someone that has that type of a personality or is it related at all? Yeah, it's such a good question. Narcissism is, is a completely different category, although on the surface you might see some similarities and I understand the question completely. Dismissive avoidance can be wonderful partners if they're willing to take a look at the behaviors that got them there. Mm. Narcissists typically do not have that ability in narcissistic right. personality disorder really requires a uh, much more aggressive psychoanalytical therapeutic approach that is beyond, in my opinion, what self-growth books sure. and online services and et cetera. Versus dismissive avoidance can uh, identify themselves in the DA, I'm going to abbreviate it here, the DA subtype and have a wake up call and realize, my gosh, like this is why I've been behaving like this. And this is this is what I need to do to work towards this. And yeah, closeness feels really uncomfortable, but I, I really want to be a better partner and I really want to have a lasting relationship. And they can definitely move towards secure in a totally different way. Narcissism really uh, does not have the ability to take responsibility yeah. for their own behaviors. So I, I would say that they're quite different. And the last thing I'm just going to add to that question, because I think it's such an important question, is there's a lot of books demonizing dismissive avoidance. Um, and I won't name the books that I'm referring to. I've read a few of them. And it really brings up these deeper wounds for the dismissive avoidant of shame. Yeah. Deep, deep down at the core for dismissive avoidance, they actually feel like they're broken internally mm -hmm. and they have a lot of shame. Even though they have this elevated sense of self, they deep down have a, a lot of shame and actually fear abandonment, which is on the surface more of a characteristic of the anxious. So I say that because when we demonize dismissive avoidance and even potentially, which happens a lot on social media, put them in the same category as narcissists, it only reinforces this narrative that they are broken and they are not mm. broken. Yeah. And, you know, without calling him out, my partner of over two years is a healing uh, dismissive avoidant. And I would definitely um, say that, you know, it takes time just like any other attachment type, but people do, they do heal if they want to. And that's the biggest piece. That's the key, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you for clarifying, clarifying that. That's yeah. really good information. Yeah, absolutely. Fearful avoidant is the third insecure attachment type, and it's uh, really a pendulum between the two. So I started with anxiously attached and dismissive avoidant because fearful avoidant is really a combination of the two. Okay. And 
it can be the most complicated because depending on uh, the history of trauma, and by the way, fearful avoidance are the most likely to have big T traumas in their past Mm -hmm. as opposed Mm -hmm. to little T traumas. They are also the most likely to be synonymous with some behaviors of borderline personality disorder, which borderline personality disorder is similar to narcissism is a much more complex psychological disorder versus fearful avoidant is specifically an insecure attachment type. But again, there's there's crossover in how people behave. If somebody is fearful avoidant uh, and they tend to lean anxious, they will display more characteristics of the anxiously attached when dating a dismissive avoidant. Okay. Conversely, if that fearful avoidant is dating a anxiously preoccupied individual, they will actually lean dismissive. And that comes up in some of the distinguishing pieces is anxiously attached individuals will do something called protest behaviors when they are upset at their partner. So they will um, either call incessantly or then they will completely um, block somebody. They will completely block somebody, but they're really wanting the person to reach out. They were Mm. truly in their heart wanting the person to reach out. Fearful avoidant individuals will actually deactivate, which means they will start to pull themselves emotionally out of the relationship. They will not only uh, block their partners, but they will actually be like, I'm done. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not interested in the relationship. I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. They might even move their things out of the house if they're living together or what have you. They may even threaten to break up and they mean it when, when they're um, in that state. They will then rapidly switch mm-hmm. on a dime. And that is what's so confusing to their partners is they can go from this anxious to dismissive person uh, within hours to days. It's a a very rapid transition. And deactivation is a core strategy that dismissive avoidance use to push their partners away. Fearful avoidance do it as well. They do it less than dismissive avoidance, but they do it. Anxiously preoccupied don't do it very much. They actually do this protest behavior thing that is not true deactivation, right? The other um, consistencies with fearful avoidance is that they tend to um, need their own space to some extent. They do tend to get a little overwhelmed if they spend too much time with their partner. They're not uh, needing the same amount of space typically as the dismissive avoidant. But they do well with having their own time. They do have some capabilities to self-soothe because they've had to learn how to do that in their nervous system and behaviors. But then they uh, can blame their partners if Mm -hmm. that space is given too much or too fast. Um, They may say, well, you know, I, I just needed a day. And their partner may say, well, you know, it's only been two days. And yeah. they're like, well, you know, I, I feel abandoned or some version thereof. So they, they don't exactly know what they want and there can be a lot of inconsistencies. They also tend to have the biggest need for deep connection, deep conversations. They get bored easily in relationships without chaos. They mm-hmm. want to constantly kind of stir the pot in relationships because that's what they knew growing up. Yeah. They knew a lot about chaos. And so they find themselves drawn 
to repeating those behaviors. And they tend to do this break up, get back together, break up, get back together cycle quite often, which then can lead to a very dysfunctional, toxic relationship if the other person isn't able to hold some firm boundaries. Yeah. So those are the the big things with those three types. It's so fascinating. I mean, I think that listening to you, I feel like there's aspects of all of those that I'm like, oh, yeah, I can relate to that. And so can somebody have like a primary type and a secondary type? Yeah. Does have some people like mostly secure, but have some traits of each? Like, how does that look? Yeah. So rarely are, are people all 100% of one type or another. Most of us are a combination of all four, right? Um, but we do classify individuals as being their dominant attachment type. Okay. And um, almost always, um, when you read through kind of the, the descriptions of each one, um, you can ping yourself for which uh, type you fall into when you're backed into a corner. Mm-hmm. And that is really where I think the distinguishing marks come in is we, uh, when things are going well in our relationships, when life is going well, it's almost easy to put ourselves into a secure place and just say, oh, yeah, I'm definitely secure. But like so many other things, when stress arises, kind of what is your go-to? When you're tired, when you're depleted, what is your go-to? Do you tend to flip-flop a lot? Do you tend to be more reactive? Do you tend to be clingy, right? That's mm. that anxious side. Or do you tend to need to coil into yourself and need space and push others out because otherwise you're not going to be able to recuperate? So I do think that it's very important to, to identify what your dominant type is, but we are a combination of all of those. And I'll just add on that with dismissives, they do tend to really do well with creature comfort. Be sports, things that are going to distract their brain from processing, right? They're, they're not great communicators as a general theme. Anxiously attached individuals tend to want to talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. You and I, as, as women, we have, you know, friends who probably we know people that just need to verbally process, talk about sure. their feelings. Those are um, more hallmarks of the anxiously attached, and they don't do as well with those creature comforts to self-soothe. That's fascinating. And where, where would you say that being introverted or extroverted plays into this, if at all? Because I think some yeah. of this, too, people would just, you know, attribute to, well, I'm just an introvert and that's how I recharge. That's how I sort of, you know, self-soothe or... Yeah, there's there's probably some threads there. Um, there's not necessarily all introverts, you know, being more dismissive and all extroverts being more anxious. I would definitely say that you can get a very extroverted dismissive type because they are extroverted on a superficial level. But when you look at their close relationships and even close relationships with family members or potentially friends, not just intimate partners, they may not have the level of depth versus Again, anxiously attached can be very introverted, but they have a lot of close relationships with people around them and they crave that connection with others. So that's really the main difference. And people can have different attachment personalities depending on the type of relationship. They can have a very dismissive relationship with their sister, for example, and then they can have a very anxious relationship with their intimate partner Mm. um, as a survival strategy for how they were able to kind of, again, survive as they, they grew up. And that speaks to your question before, 
you know, the percentage that we are of each type. So I, I think that plays a role. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm thinking back to, I've been married now for 14 years with my partner for 17, which is wild. But I'm thinking back to two people in particular that I dated before him who were definitely dismissive, voidant. And it didn't last long because of that, because I was like, this isn't going to work for me. <laughs> but one of them was particularly extroverted, the life of the party, had everybody laughing all the time, but just never went deep. Mm-hmm. Never got really close to anybody. There was never any real intimacy. Um, and so that's a really interesting example that came to mind when you were mentioning that. Yeah. And I actually think that speaks to you being secure, Jeannie, just in, in that statement alone, because a lot of secure individuals won't tolerate being in a relationship mm-hmm. where their needs aren't being met. And uh, they are uh, quick to or quicker to exit when they identify that this person is not able to uh, be a healthy partner for me, as opposed to the fearful avoidant who leans anxious or the anxiously attached. They will do anything typically to keep that person around just to try to avoid being alone mm. and, and their fear of abandonment. So interesting. that's a useful piece of information for you. Well, that's encouraging. Thank you. I, I feel like the one that kind of resonates the most with with me, with my younger self would be the dismissive because mm-hmm. I definitely have probably more of those traits than any of the others. You know, a tendency to really just write people off if I feel mm-hmm. that they've taken advantage of me or disrespected me or something like that. And just, I definitely kept people at arm's length. I've done a lot of therapy, a lot of work <laughs> over the years. Yeah. And I definitely can see a shift, a positive shift. But hey, you know, I've definitely struggled with these things. I've ruined some really good friendships yeah. because I felt just taken for granted by certain people mm-hmm. or whatever it was. And mm-hmm. instead of leaning into that and saying, let's talk this out, this is how I feel, but I value you, it felt safer to just exit. Yeah. Right. And just dismiss the entire thing, which looking back, I feel quite sad about because they were people who did really care for me and love me, but I just didn't have the skills to navigate that yeah. at the time. And so it's like, all right, I'm out. Well, conflict avoidance is, again, another hallmark of, of being dismissive avoidant. And I think that that speaks to when you're trying to work through conflict, there's a level of vulnerability and there's a mm-hmm. level of intimacy, even if it's in a non-romantic partnership. Yeah. And I think that that just is because they dismissive avoidance in general, they never um, grew up with the tools to be able to work through conflict because they were taught that conflict equals them feeling bad. Conflict equals them um, being hurt. So I'm just going to avoid the whole thing so I don't have to deal with that. And then until, like you said, somebody goes through therapy or they start to acknowledge or or read and and educate themselves about these things, it's very hard. You know, one of the leaders in this attachment theory field who has a lot of great social media content is Thais Gibson on the personaldevelopmentschool.com. I really love her work. And she emphasizes that it's almost like with a dismissive avoidant and an anxiously attached individual, when trying to communicate, it's like the anxiously attached um, is a expert hockey player, ice hockey player, you know, and they're out on the hockey ring and they're able to kind of skate super fast and they're very communicative and they're very comfortable in that space. And then the dismissive avoidant, if they've never done any of this healing work, they've never been on skates before. 
Yeah. They're barely able to stay on the ice. And so if two people are in a relationship and they're working on healing and one is anxious and the other is avoidant, it doesn't mean that the relationship is doomed. What it does mean is that the anxious in terms of communication and conflict resolution is going to have to be patient with the dismissive. And the dismissive goes at a very different pace as the anxious. The anxious is like, let's go. What's happening here? And the dismissive like, wait. I need a couple days to process this one conversation, hold your horses, and that could feel like a rejection to the anxious. And then this cycle continues. So interesting. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fascinating stuff. It's just so cool. I think it's really encouraging. You know, knowledge is power. And I think this is a perfect example of that where, hey, you know, it. this isn't such complex stuff that anybody can't just dive in and yeah. learn from this and get in touch with themselves and sort of start to navigate this, right? And learn these tools. And it's exciting. Yeah. You mentioned before enmeshment. So I want to talk about more about what that is. Yeah. And in one of your blog posts, I'm going to quote you. You said, partnerships, marriages, and relationships that are often the most emotionally stable can predispose to enmeshment of lives and loss of sexual arousal. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Talk about that because, geez, none of us wants that. But I think that anyone who has been married or in a partnership for a really long time can attest to the truth of that. So talk about what enmeshment is and why it can be a libido killer, especially for women. Yeah. Enmeshment's one of probably the most important topics to discuss in the context of sexual health. I do a fair amount of counseling um, in my sexual health visits with patients. Um, Couples come in together sometimes, sometimes just alone. And um, a lot of times this um, idea that we have to be our partners, everything and end all be all for all things is actually driving the sexual component of the relationship into the ground. And enmeshment is something that um, is really when two people's lives are so blended that there is no separation for error. There is no uh, opportunity to miss the other person. There is no room for wonder and imagination anymore. And a very common theme of this happens when people um, are in you know, relationships with very young children because you require uh, each other for so much. And then the child is taking up so much of that energy, but it can right. happen in dynamics where let's say both people are working from home together. They're eating every meal together. They're sleeping in the same home. They're, you know, traveling together. They're doing everything together other than maybe their individual career stuff. And, um, and so part of the issue is that, you know, with sexual desire, and this is, you know, coming from the work of Jack Barin, who has um, written a great book, um, Erotic Desire, and it really focuses on how obstacles, and I'm going to actually quote him here, attraction plus obstacles equals erotic arousal. And that, I think, is really important to introduce in the context of long-term relationships. And it can be done by simply ensuring that you have your own lives. And this can be achieved through allowing for people to have their own hobbies. It doesn't mean you can't have any mutual hobbies. Sure, yeah. Having your own friends, it doesn't mean you can't have mutual friends. Right. Uh, 
and making sure that when you're going and going to the grocery store that, you know, you are thinking about, okay, like here's some time for me to breathe and here's some, and I'm my own individual. I'm not just an extension of my partner, right? Like this is, this is really important. I also borrow in this enmeshment discussion some work um, from Esther Perel, who most people are familiar with. She's an amazing author, sex therapist, psychologist, um, who's very widely known in the um, psychological community, sexual health community. And she, she focuses really on this introduction of the threat of the third. And while that might seem like a kind of extreme version, what the threat of the third really means in her context is not necessarily introducing a third person into the relationship, but knowing that your partner at any point can choose Mm. to go elsewhere and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And that creates this emotional separation. And often, even if it feels uncomfortable, can arouse individuals and create a little bit of desire because Mm. there isn't this ownership over their partner and their partner doesn't own them. And that is, a, again, in this world that we are this modern monogamy above all else world, which monogamy, there's nothing wrong with that. It's certainly a choice. And, and you know, there's nothing, you know, adverse necessarily to people making that choice. But it does mean that you have to understand that we were never intended to be each other's everything, right, all yeah. things. Even biologically speaking, humans have not evolved as such. And there was a lot of historical distance. So I think it's really important to know that when we expect our partners to meet all of our emotional needs, to uh, be providers or co-providers in the household, to raise our children together in an equal way, which again, there's nothing wrong with those things, but also not have any desires or interests outside of the relationship. It's just not practical. So introduction of the third, I think, is a really interesting way. And I use this example in one of my blogs is it can be as simple as imagining your partner catching a glance from another person across the room. And that's as as far as it goes. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What does that stir up in you? Does Mm. that stir up feelings of jealousy? Does that stir up feelings of desire? And if it's more jealousy and anger, that actually can be... (laughs) almost like the door to creating a little bit more of the sexual energy that may have been missing. So again, people have to be really comfortable with that in the context of their relationship. But I, I think that Esther Perel, and this is, this is, you know, been documented, well-documented, really is onto something when we say, you know, enmeshment and loss of our own individuality is yeah. what can lead to this loss of libido, desire, and also loss of respect for our partners. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can't tell you how many times I've had women say to me, I have three kids, but I actually have four because I'm basically my husband's mother. Mm -hmm. And that's a horrible place to be. But Mm -hmm. we also need to take responsibility for Mm -hmm. that in our lives Mm -hmm. and say like, okay, if by sacrificing all of our own needs, desires, identity, et cetera, we come to a place where we are totally enmeshed. We don't have those things going for us anymore as individuals. And now we're resenting our family because of it. Mm-hmm. That's 
the real selfishness, mm-hmm. right? I think that people often feel, well, I'm selfish if I'm practicing self-care, if I take a time, you know, time for myself or maybe a trip away alone, whatever that might be. But I think it's really so crucial for us, especially because women in our culture do end up being more of the caregivers, right? There's so much more energy output. Yeah. And it's insane to expect ourselves to be and do everything to everyone right. and still feel, you know, have the energy left over for a sex drive. Like, it, yeah, it's insane. And hey, that's easy for me to say. I don't have children. So there's one less element in my life that I have to, you know, manage. Um, one less place I have to drive my energy towards. But I think especially for women who are parents, it's so crucial to really take a look at this and step back and go, okay, wait a minute. Like, if I do love my husband, if I do love my kids, if I want a healthy marriage, if I don't want to feel like my partner's parent, you know, how can I make some changes here so that I can reclaim my individuality and sexuality and feel like I'm a woman, not just, you know, a, a maid, Correct. Right? a glorified maid and workhorse every day. And I think what you said that really stuck out to me just now, Jeannie, is the taking of responsibility. And this is something that I think you and I both hear from our patients and clients often is that there's this trend or this tendency to blame the partner, in this case, the husband or the wife or whoever it is that we're speaking to that is is saying, hey, this person's doing this to me. And I will challenge that um, in my visits. I'll say, okay, like they're, you know, your perception is that they're doing this to you, but mm-hmm. we can't, we can't change anyone but ourselves. What is the behaviors that we can actually start to implore instead of making your husband special dinner at night because it's different than what you want to eat and different than what the kids want to eat, have him make it himself, right? Or, and that she may say something like, well, you know, he won't eat then, or, you know, then he'll, he'll, you know, not be eating as healthy or whatever the case is. Well, if you choose to then turn on your nurture hat, and you mm-hmm. choose to then continue to perpetuate that behavior, really it becomes enabling. And, you know, you wouldn't exactly. pour him a drink every night if he was an alcoholic, or at least right. most people would understand that. It's the same thing, right? Like yeah. you're really enabling. And, and furthermore, I would elaborate to say that there is some great work, and I'm calling out some of the people that I really hope your audience will go out and, re- and read these books. Nan Weiss wrote a fantastic book called Why Good Sex Matters. She's a a neurobiologist and fantastic sex therapist. And this book really speaks to something um, around the neurobiology of desire Mm -hmm. and how our seeking system can get turned on or turned off based on what is the circumstances in our lives and how that interplay of our circumstances in our lives then can upregulate or downregulate the production of certain hormones in our brain. And what a lot of people don't understand is dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter that's an excitatory uh, pleasure-seeking neurotransmitter, is the most important uh, way of of turning on our seeking system, far more important than testosterone. A lot of people attribute to is the predominant uh, hormone. And while testosterone activates dopamine, testosterone is actually secondary in this case. So we need to be um, having things to look forward to. We need to be doing pleasurable activities, not just sex. We need to be going out and spending time in nature. We need to be actually spending time with our girlfriends. We need to be 
going out and having fun with our partner, right? It's not just about doing the dishes and paying the bills and going to the soccer games on the weekends. It's about having fun as individuals and not just this family unit that people can get into this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful, but yet um, somewhat routine, mundane lifestyle. And in order to cultivate sexuality and sexual desire, uh, dopamine is necessary for the pieces of the puzzle. And you you and I could even do another podcast in the future, but there are pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic botanical ways of stimulating those systems. But if it's just a Band-Aid for what is happening in in the interdependence or uh, codependency of the relationship, then those pieces need to be sorted before introduction of um, brain chemistry modification. Absolutely. And I think And we can come back to this because I really want to dive into that codependency, interdependency piece. But this leads back into something that I'm always addressing with clients as well. If you don't have anything that's joyful that you're looking forward to in your day to day or once a week or whatever, right? We need those things to look forward to. These things that are giving us that dopamine. It makes perfect sense that especially as Americans, we're all turning to food. These blissy dopamine stimulating foods. Right. And then if you add the layer of not having that sexual chemistry happening within our relationships, right, right it drives that even or the More. drive is even stronger. Yeah. Right. And so it's a crucial piece, whether we're talking about a relationship with food or relationship with our families, our loved ones, our partners. This is not an option. We have to have we are designed as humans to have joy and fun and connection in our lives. Yeah. And so. If you guys take nothing else away from this conversation, mm-hmm. prioritize that. Mm-hmm. Prioritize that because I think that that is one of the most basic forms of, of self-care. Yeah, I agree. Joy right? is huge. And if you look at just from a health perspective, you know, the centenarians around the world, um, you know, Dan Bruner has this great uh, documentary right now um, on one of the streaming platforms and looking at blue zones uh, and just people who live past 100, um, routinely cultures that live past 100, one of the foundational pieces in all of those cultures he talks about is joy Mm -hmm. and how, you know, even if somebody isn't doing all the things that we might presume or say are healthy, but they have strong family connections, they spend time with play, they dance, they spend time outside, um, they smile, they laugh, right? So to your point, I think that there's ample evidence that that is critical uh, for health. And when you ask the question around or make the statement around that people are seeking you know, food as a way of increasing dopamine, I absolutely agree that um, food, you know, and even going back to attachment theory, has become this way of getting our needs met, yeah, right? Exactly. Keep talking about attachment theory and the reasons people behave a certain way is because ultimately they're trying to get their subconscious needs met. And the brain is a needs meeting machine. We are designed, subconscious mind is a needs meeting machine, I should say. And food, especially foods that can give us that quick hit, are going to then encourage more and more of that. And, you know, it's a joke in my office, actually. I don't know if I have it behind me. I do. That uh, my, my residents all know that I have a pretty strong <laughs> and um oh me too i love my dark chocolate <laughs> but it, there's truth in like it actually creates this this hit this dopamine yeah. slash opioid hit believe it or not um yeah. and so if we're not 
if we're not really paying attention to, okay, why is it that during a really crazy busy day and I haven't eaten anything, all I want is chocolate. Like, oh, okay. Like there's actually a chemical explanation for that. Same thing, right? If somebody's yeah. reaching for something that's comfort food, you know, there's an explanation for it, which yeah. just as an aside, why one of the weight loss drugs, not one of the big GLP ones that's on the market, but weight loss drugs, Contrave has Wellbutrin, which is mm -hmm. a antidepressant that raises dopamine in its formulation. Yep. And to combat the uh, part of the brain nucleus accumbens that is designed to crave, you know, pleasure seeking behaviors and it helps to mitigate some of those food cravings. So yeah, just think that there's, there's explanations for it. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, it's knowledge is power, right? And I think that it can help remove some of the shame that we have around these yep. things. Yep. And if we're understanding like, hey, if I'm not getting my needs met elsewhere, of course I would turn to something simple and easy and available like food to meet right. those needs, at least in a momentary sense, right? So, yeah. Okay. So talk more about codependency and the difference between that and interdependence. Yeah. So codependency, I think, is actually um, taught in our culture. Mm, yeah. And I think that this is a really important piece for us to start with. So codependency is really, again, making your partner um, the center of your universe and that you are not able to function without them. Mm, like there mm -hmm. is a, you are a half and they are a half and therefore that you guys need each other to be whole right. versus you are a whole and they are a whole and you guys are going to roll down life together. Right. They were, those are two very different things. Um, and I would say that the rolling down the street together as two holes is actually interdependence, which can be a really beautiful thing. But codependency is really taught in our culture, particularly to girls. And yeah. this is, um, you know, even when you and I were growing up and, you know, Disney movies and, you know, the fairy tales and just the um, TV shows and every media you know, pop culture reference that you can imagine of that there's this Prince Charming that is going to just take care of us. And uh, we all we have to do yeah. is sit there and look pretty. Yeah. And I think that that's still very true today, hopefully less so. I see it, you know, in my partner's 14 year old daughter, I, I see it less so than probably when I was her age, but it's still definitely present. And I think that what that creates is this conception in a developing mind that, oh, okay, if I want love, if I want to receive love, and let's say that the same person is anxiously attached, then I have to earn love or mm, I have yeah. to be, be good to you know, earn and achieve love. And they're not being taught to get it uh, internally. And so then yeah. they find a partner that they attach to that then might also have the same narratives in their head that, oh, I need to take care of this person. I need to be there for them. And then what happens as years goes on is that I need to earn love female. And we're, again, we're using these female and male archetypes, but it obviously can go for same-sex couples as well, yeah. is that that female partner then starts to become the nurturer, the mother and on it goes, as we just talked about. But they are they are so enmeshed. They don't know how to separate one for the other. They don't know how to enjoy time by themselves. They've never learned to be a individual. So long-winded way of explaining, you know, 
my take on codependency. The interdependency piece, I think, speaks to that um, maintenance of desire, that maintenance of arousal, because these individuals have found a way to then not only be in long-term committed partnership, but they are able to have their own lives. And this person may go off on the side and do something for a little while, their own project, their own interests, hobbies, and this person may move forward. And it's kind of like this dance that, yes, they want to move forward in life together, but it is also healthy to take these little deviations or take these little detours that don't always involve your partner. Absolutely. Healthy. And when you can lean on your partner, but not need them for everything, that is a healthy level of interdependence. What I want to be clear with your listeners is I'm not advocating, and nor is any of the literature on this topic, advocating for complete and total independence and not being able to communicate to your partner when you are feeling sad or when you've had a bad day. It's really the difference between saying, hey, like, I'm needing some support right now. I'm wondering if you could hold some space for me. Yeah. Whatever way that looks like to communicate. And saying, I need you to fix this for me. What can I do? I don't know what to do. And then having them be the fixer. Sure. Yep. Right? Yep. And that is what I think we have not taught young girls and women how to self-soothe, how to stand on their own two feet without having this other take care of them. Right. And I think the other piece of that, which is sort of, you know, a a side separate conversation is this idea, and I think this is much more common with our parents' generation, but this idea that your value lies in whether or not you have a partner or a man wants you, right? And so I remember girlfriends back in my like early 20s saying like, oh, I just want my life to start. I just want to get married and have kids so my life can start. It's like, wait, I always took pause when they'd say that. And of course, I was raised by a single mom, so I had a very different situation where, you know, her life was going on the whole time. Like she wasn't waiting around for anybody to start her life. And I'm grateful for that example, because I think a lot of women did not have that. Um, One of my closest girlfriends, her mother is that way. Exactly. Like she has to have a man constantly. If she doesn't, she just feels like she's this worthless individual. And again, that speaks back to, you know, really doing the work to regain that sense of self and understand who you are and what your needs are and what you really want for yourself, what you enjoy. Remember that movie with Julia Roberts, Runaway Bride, where oh, yeah. he's asking yeah. her, well, what kind of eggs do you want? And she just keeps ordering the same kind of eggs as whoever she's with at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so she ends up having to try like 16 yeah. different preparations of eggs before she realized yeah. what she actually liked. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a joke, but it's it's sadly really common. So common. It's so good. No, I think you're right. Um, so, and and I do see, I mean... I do see there being positive shifts and momentous shifts. And I think there's some great examples in pop culture right now of, you know, women who are demonstrating healthy interdependence and commitment to themselves. And even through their, you know, the artist Beyonce is coming up for me is, you know, someone to just really look up to and just some really good examples. But, you know, I think that it's tough to With family dynamics, if you grew up hearing from your mother, you know, X, Y, or Z in the example that you gave with your friend, like that is woven into 
her psyche. Mm -hmm. And that is going to have to be shifted through repetition plus emotion, which is really how we reprogram our attachment types and our beliefs in our subconscious brain. Mm. So it it's a very um yeah. it's a very important process. I think that we all, whether you know someone's secure attachment type, whether they're just going through kind of that mid-20s coming of age time of their life, you know, or even in adolescence, I just think it's really important to identify who you are. And that's hard. Yeah. It's really hard to do. I'm still doing that at yeah. 49. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like more so now than ever. I yeah. think it's really an interesting thing. And, you know, many of you women out there listening are of a similar age bracket mm-hmm. to Dr. Leary and I. Dr. Leary is younger than me. But I think yeah. that that is sort of this point that we reach at the stage of life where we're like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. And we're either recalibrating because mm-hmm. of different changes in our lives or we just realize that we want something different or something more or what have you. Or, you know, people's kids are leaving and mm-hmm. their role is shifting mm-hmm. in their relationship and they're sort of, you know, empty nesters going, wait a minute. Like, okay, I'm not just this in this mom role anymore. Yeah. Like, what, you know, where do I fit now? What, right. who am I? <laughs> what am I about now in this new incarnation of myself, this new stage of my life? And it's mm-hmm. kind of exciting and fun. And yeah, it is scary at times. And it's, it can be hard work to, to, and it can be painful, right? Yeah. To look inward and go, oh, okay, wait a minute. Like, this is what's going on. This explains a lot. But then we have the tool or we can find the tools if we know what's going on to address it and to heal and make positive changes. Yeah. And I think that that's where, you know, the tools are really available. Um, It's, you know, I've said this a few times now, but repetition plus emotion. And so identifying what are your core needs, right? And making sure, and I'm going to try to quote Tony Robbins here because he has a great outline of, of, you know, the core human needs. And one of them is significance. So let's see if I can do it here, guys, on the spot. (laughs) Significance, love and connection, growth. So like, self-growth. Giving back uses a different term, but it's essentially giving to others and and contribution, I believe Mm -hmm. is what he says. There is um, security and then there's basically having consistency or inconsistency. So he has this great way of kind of outlining these different human needs and how all of us really fit into, we need some of those more or less than others. And then of course, you know, there's the love languages piece, right? Which, you know, is having personal touch or physical touch, gifts, words of affirmation. Help me out here, Jeannie. Quality time. Quality time and then uh, acts of uh, service. Acts of service. That's right. Yeah. And so those, I think, you know, attachment theory plus this, you know, look at what the Tony Robbins model is in terms of human needs. And then we look at what, you know, the five love languages and all of those pieces of information can really help gather somebody's understanding of what they need, what their partner needs, and have those deeper, tougher conversations. And the biggest piece is if somebody is in a relationship with someone that truly is unwilling or unable to kind of show up to the relationship, Mm -hmm. they have to make a decision. Yeah. Is that something that they're okay with? And in some cases, the answer is yes, I'm okay with this because I can get my own needs met uh, through self-care, whatever it is, right? Other times the answer is no, I can't. 
I can't maintain. And that's part of the reason that divorce after 50 is actually skyrocketing is because people have children going off to college. They're having these moments with themselves and being like, oh, my God, how do I want to live? Yeah. Right. And and so divorce is, is significantly on the rise for those who have adult children. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, you pass a certain age and you think, oh, my God, like I'm more than halfway. Like the likelihood that we're all going to live past 100 is not super high necessarily. Mm-hmm. Maybe more so as time goes on and we take good care of ourselves. But, you know, just that idea of like, holy cow, like half my life is or more is already over. Right. Right. No, and I mean, it, to it spend it happy. Yeah. Yeah. It can be a reckoning and, you know, and just really making sure that we're kind of living true to our own um like we talked about identification of who we are, which it doesn't it doesn't stop at one point or another. No. But it can it can be clearer as time goes on. And if we're lucky, you know, we really are able to live that truth with those around us being respectful and also honoring what their truth is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this all plays into as you were talking about, you know, with with someone who I think was the aged anxious attachment style that they feel if someone leaves them or something like it's a physic like a threat to their life almost that's how they feel on a nervous level obviously our relationships have so much to do with our physical health as well correct i mean obviously with our mental health but i think it's it's all intertwined right we can't separate right these things and so when we're talking about overall health wellness our relationship with food and nutrition you know it's inseparable and I think that this is yet another way for people to go, okay, like if I'm using food as my source of nurturing and to get my needs met and it's my only tool right now, resource, let's look at what's missing here. Right. Let's step back. You know, and if someone is having, I think, chronic health issues of any kind, I think often that can be rooted in emotional stuff yeah. that we haven't addressed. And it's hard for the body to really heal if we're constantly kind of in this state of, you know, sympathetic nervous system or, or fight or flight, as someone might say. And if these things are causing chronic stress for us on an emotional level, like that's going to manifest physically. Yeah, it, it does. And I think that it shows up the most uh, in somebody who has explored all the conventional, I'm going to say, explanations for why they feel the way they feel and come up short with answers, which is predominant amount of your patients and mine. Um, Mm -hmm. People are just kind of feeling like they're drifting and not getting where they want to be. And that's where we really need to do some of the harder work. And I'll I'll say it again, is just getting uncomfortable or getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Because, you know, using the example of attachment theory, you know, the dismissive avoidant, uh, you know, they really get uncomfortable when they let people in on a intimate or vulnerable level. Mm -hmm. But once they practice that skill, just like we strengthen a muscle, they start to reap the rewards, not the first time they do it. They start right. to reap the rewards of like, oh, it's safe to share. It's safe to um, be open with somebody. However, they often, and I'm not sure if you identify with this as a former uh, DA here, Jeannie, but get these vulnerability hangovers mm-hmm. when they do that. They actually yeah. retract from that person that they shared with because they feel like it's the first time they've really been seen. 
right? And that can be really scary because you're you're allowing somebody to then potentially hurt you with that information that they just learned about you. And, and I just think that's a really important thing to acknowledge is, you know, particularly those who might be listening who have these dismissive avoidant partners is that the dismissive avoidant truly wants to be seen. They want to share. They just don't feel safe doing it because there is deep, deep wounds that they very likely are not even aware of. Yeah. And I will just share that I fall into that fearful avoidant category. I think I thought I was anxiously attached for a long time, but I fall into that kind of pendulum swinging at times healing uh, on the way to healing that. But I can just tell that when I am activated in that way, I'm now able to catch myself and be like, oh, okay, like this is this is that side of me. Mm-hmm. And this is a key indicator that I need to check in and I need to be like, okay, what is it that I need? Do I need some, some time to self-process? Am I feeling, you know, rejected? Am I feeling pushed away? Am I feeling you know, am I feeling smothered? Am I feeling like not getting my own time? Like, what is it that I'm feeling? And then I'm able to identify that. And then what is a healthy way to get that need instead of just either attaching to my partner or pushing them away really abruptly? So there's definitely awareness that comes with time. But I, I think it's important for people not to just put blame on the partner or their attachment type of their partner because it really is us working on our own attachment types that will yeah. lead you lead you to a dynamic that's healthier but only if your partner's willing to take that journey with you will it really be the most fruitful yeah absolutely yeah well this has been amazing as always thank you again i'm yeah super excited to dive deeper into this and i've written down the names that you mentioned of the books and the individuals. So we'll add that to the show notes so everybody can check that out. And I think you mentioned that there's a little quiz you can do at that personal mm-hmm. development school, which is kind of yeah. fun. I actually did that. I can't remember now what the yeah. was, but yes, yeah, um, I do that point. And yeah, yeah you, did, you said that to me. So any anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? Yeah, I just, I think just tying it into functional medicine in general, um, you know, in functional medicine, the curriculum that's taught at the Institute for Functional Medicine, at the center of the matrix is the mental, emotional, spiritual, yes. right? And I did a webinar series for the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy not too long ago last year, actually, on, on a very similar topic. Attachment theory was part of that. And uh, I just want to emphasize that we can't get away from the mental, emotional, spiritual piece And we really have to give due respect for that because otherwise the other pieces are not going to fit. And so you can have someone do all the work in the world on their gut, Mm -hmm. right? They can do all the work in the world on their mitochondrial function and they can biohack until the cows come home. Yeah, There's a lot of these biohacker types in our area, Seattle area. But really it, it comes down to we have to tie into that mental, emotional, spiritual. And one of the Last authors that I'll mention here that I think most of your audience probably knows is Peter Atia, yep. and um, he, you know, wrote a book this past year called Outlive, brilliant book, highly recommend. 
And he actually has an entire chapter dedicated on um, the mental, emotional, spiritual. I'm paraphrasing here. He doesn't use those exact words, but really the mental component. And without that, uh, the other pieces are going to be less successful. So I'll just emphasize that. Yeah. 100% agree with that. Um, In my season one, I had Dr. Nikki Giandomenico come on, and I used to work with her at a clinic that specialized in Lyme and chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I feel like she got the most amazing results with her patients there because she addressed that mental, emotional, spiritual piece. And often no one had addressed that. And these are patients that had seen, I think it was an average of 26 doctors or something before they mm-hmm. came to us mm-hmm. um, and had struggled with chronic disease for you know decades of their mm-hmm. lives sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until they really finally bit the bullet and mm-hmm. addressed that piece that mm-hmm. things really started to shift. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, you don't have to have a chronic illness to start addressing no. this stuff, like dive really? in, start chipping away at it. Because yeah, it, you say if we're unhealthy mentally, emotionally, or spiritually, that is going to drive everything else. It does drive everything else. And and I would really honestly attribute my success uh, in the clinic to the fact that this is an important part of my practice is diving into these components and how they impact physical manifestations of health. And I don't think it's because uh, I certainly didn't come up with this. I didn't coin this, but it's because of my awareness of how critical this is that I just don't think um, either practitioners have the training to focus on the awareness or they're just not comfortable talking about it. Right. I think it's probably more the latter. And that is something that I think is is just really, really important for people to, if they are practitioners and listening to this, like that they are willing and, and open to asking their patients these questions around, well, you know, what comes up for you when you're eating that, you know, chocolate in the middle of the night, it's, you're waking up yeah, wanting, you know, what, what's coming up for you in those moments. Yeah. And I can attest to that too. Since I have focused so much more on this mental, emotional, spiritual peace with my clients, that the changes and the results are just exponentially better with them. Yeah. It's really, and it, it's not sexy, right? It's not going to shift. It, initially, I think people aren't jumping on this right away because they're not going to see a big jump on the number on the scale overnight or in a matter of weeks, sometimes even months, just because they're focusing on their mindset. But the people who do that work, yeah, once the needle starts to move for them with their health and their relationship with food, it's profound. It's profound. Right. And they experience a level of freedom right. that they never experienced, regardless of how, quote unquote, successful with you know weight loss or whatever it was that they were, and it didn't last. Right. So, yeah. Good for you. And yeah. I really appreciate your work, Dr. Larry, because yeah. you know I've been your patient. I love that you mm-hmm. bring this aspect into your practice. I do think it's an absolute necessity. I think there's a lot more awareness now. Yeah, I agree. In our world of natural health, functional medicine, mm-hmm. and that people are realizing the importance mm-hmm. of this and the power of it. So people want it. People want it. It's, it's just hard. It's just hard. So yeah. Yeah. But you yeah. get there. Yeah. You and I are, we're still here. We're <laughs> to live to talk about it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank so much. Thanks again. Absolutely.
favorite topic. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. And I really appreciate you sharing with us and just give us a little bit of a rundown. I know you've had a shift in your practice structure since we last had you on. So just tell people a little bit about where they can find you and how they could potentially work with you or one of your practitioners in the future. Yeah. Thank you. So I am the director of of Vita Integrated Health, Vita Functional Medicine. um, And we have shifted as of July 15th of this year to a concierge hybrid medicine model. That means there is a membership fee in order to work with one of our functional medicine practitioners. We still bill office visits to insurance. So we do um, are able to subsidize. And there are ways that we are able to do that by charging um, the membership fee for non-insurance covered services. So just for anyone who's wondering, it's not double dipping. <laughs> um, <laughs> what it is, is really better access to your physician. And we are able to then significantly help the members on a exponential scale compared to feeling like we were really just drinking from the fire hose yeah. as doctors. Um, and we have hired an entire behind the scenes nurse team to support our patients with um, as needed issues, urgent care calls, et cetera. We do have an entire concierge onboarding team who is able to kind of match you with the appropriate practitioner. Our panels are uh, mostly full. We do have a new doctor who is starting. We do all have wait lists for those of us who are no longer taking new patients, but we do have a new provider who starts Monday, next Monday, October 23rd. Her name is Brandy Lynn Binstock. She is fantastic, is IFM certified um, and has been teaching at Bastier and teaches the functional medicine shifts. So she is very knowledgeable about functional medicine and motivated and excited to work with our Vita patients. So that is where you can find me. I also have a website and blog on powersexbeauty.com, which is, Jeannie, where you are finding some of this. Yeah content. And that's really where my passion project lies, is really writing and building content for those who are interested in sexual health, attachment theory, and related discussion topics. Perfect. Yeah, there's some great information there. So we'll put that link in the notes as well. Well, thanks again so much for joining me. And thanks for joining us, everybody. And we will look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Hey there. Thanks for hanging out with me today. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave me a quick review. Also check out the show notes for links to connect, follow, and share this podcast and for information featured in each episode. See you next time. I am not a doctor and the content here should not be taken as medical advice. All information in this podcast is for informational purposes only, does not constitute medical advice and does not establish any kind of practitioner or coach client relationship. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Do not disregard medical advice or delay seeking medical advice because of information you hear in this podcast or any other, and do not start or stop any medications without speaking to your health provider. Always seek the advice of a qualified health practitioner before undertaking a new health regimen. This podcast and website represents the opinion of Jeannie Oliver and guests to the show, Opinions of guests are their own and do not reflect the opinions of Genie Oliver Wellness LLC or our producers.